What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts, a brand new edition and I'm your host Andrew Dunkley and with me from the Australian Astronomical Observatory is Fred Watson. G'day Fred. G'day Andrew, good to be back again. Yes, yes, you've uh, been travelling the world. Uh, Indeed, yes. You've been all over, where'd you go this time? Well it was... told me but that was two months ago. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't um, all over the place, it was fairly local, it was um, Ireland and the United Kingdom so... Uh, I guess we did Ireland, um, England and Scotland. Um, Sadly, we didn't do Wales, but we did everything else. Uh, And it was mostly about um, looking at the not just astronomy facilities there, but a lot of the history of um, science in general and also engineering in in those countries. We we looked at a lot of uh, the iconic uh, engineering uh, feats of uh, the United Kingdom in particular, especially once to do with railways, which is a bit of a, a hobby of mine. Okay. Um, but we also took in some of the great thinkers in terms of their poetic uh, ambitions and things of that sort. The tour was called Great British Thinkers, and we, I don't know quite what I was doing leading it, but we took in <laughs> we took in a lot of other very thoughtful people. Great British <laughs> thinkers. Wouldn't it have taken you very long then? <laughs> ho, ho, ho. Yeah, well, you know, I had to get that one in. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's good to have you back, Fred, and we've got a whole fresh array of topics to discuss today, and one of them is this, this strange situation where um, a star has been dimming, which is not unusual when planets transit stars, but this one's been dimming to the tune of 22%, which has got scientists a little bit baffled, but they think they've figured out why. Uh, We've also discovered that um, Pluto's moon Charon has a red cap, and Mercury uh, has something that Earth has, which has surprised people, and we'll get to that a little later. But first... This uh, unusual situation with a dimming star. Now, when a planet passes in front of a star, that star's light is dimmed to the tune of a very minute amount. 
and yet we've got a star that's being observed that is dimming by nearly one quarter of its magnitude, and, and that's, that's just weird. That's just not normal. What is going on? So the star we're talking about um, uh, rejoices in the elegant name of KIC 8462852. Don't forget that number. <laughs> I'm going to ring them later. Ring them later on, yeah, that's right. And it's, um, it's a star that's uh, from the catalogue of stars observed by the Kepler spacecraft. And Kepler was built, actually, to do exactly what you've described, look for the, the small dips in the brightness of stars that betrays the presence of a planet that is... Uh, passing across the disk of the star or transiting the disk of the star and causing its light to reduce slightly. Um, and exactly as you said, uh, if if uh, you uh, observe a star with something the size of Jupiter going around it, say a star a bit like the sun, then the amount of dimming is about 1%. So if um, an alien civilization was looking at our solar system and looked at uh, uh, for transits of the planet Jupiter, uh, they would see them if their equipment was accurate enough uh, to, to, to measure 1% dips. Uh, but as you've said, this star, K KIC, all the rest of it, uh, has actually been dipping by much greater amounts, up to 22%. And these dips have not been regular. And um, the key thing about a planet passing in front of a, a star is that, of course, it's a regular phenomenon. So the, the planet tra transits across the face of the star, the light of the star dips, um, then... <clears throat> few days or months or sometimes years later, it does it again because it's in orbit around the star. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that, that means that you, you then have the evidence that there is something sort of permanent that's orbiting this star and, and, is, um, uh, and is, is regular in its appearance. <clears throat> in other words, a planet. Yeah. This particular star, though, and, and the dips that it's shown have been uh, erratic. They've been coming and going. They don't seem to have any regularity they um, uh, have this huge effect on the star's light, 22%. And there's also a steady, apparently a steady decline in the brightness of the star over time, which is not something that happens, at least on the time scales that the Kepler spacecraft has been looking What's at. What's fascinating, stuff. Fred, is some of the theories that are popping up. And, um, <laughs> exactly. you know, one, one, I, I, I suppose somebody's considered that maybe this, this star is just burning out. Uh, although they don't tend to do that, do they? Uh, or uh, someone thought maybe an alien megastructure to screen screen the sun. Um, that that theory's been put forward. Uh, that's right. Uh, uh, so this this idea, in fact, is a very old one. It goes back to the 1960s uh, when uh, a scientist called Freeman Dyson um, thought about what. A, a super advanced alien civilization would do to harvest energy from its parent star. <clears throat> and uh, he envisaged a kind of spherical collector of energy, um, something that you could build around the star that would take all the energy out of it. Uh, and then you could use that for whatever high tech processes you want, whether it's space travel or a space flight or whatever. Um, and so um, this has come to be known as a Dyson sphere, this the idea of something that will collect the energy of a star. And in fact, Freeman Dyson said we should look for these things. So uh, because of the peculiar uh, light behavior of this Kepler star, um, people have actually proposed that maybe it's a Dyson sphere. But that 
that uh, sort of you know blocking the light of the star and causing these erratic dimming of phenomena. What but that doesn't hold. What you're going to tell me, Fred, is is the unexciting truth, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> That's what. You well, we could stop. Me. We we could stop there if you like. Yeah, I, I mean, I love the idea of an alien megastructure or a Dyson oh, sphere, exactly. but I've got a feeling it's it's going to be a Dyson vacuum instead. Uh, yeah, that's suck. right. <laughs> it probably will suck. Yes, that's right. Just like a Dyson. Um, the the uh, the problem with the Dyson sphere idea is that you would expect if there was a Dyson sphere collecting uh, all the light from a star that it would itself be getting warm and would radiate in the infrared region of the spectrum. In other words, it would <clears throat> it would be throwing off heat, uh, which we see as infrared radiation. Uh, so people have looked for infrared radiation around this star, and they haven't found any. Uh, so that kind of suggests that it's not a Dyson sphere. And really, people have got to the end of their tether in terms of wild and wacky ideas. Some people suggested families of comets um, orbiting this star that might be sporadically blocking out the light, but that doesn't hold up either. And the best theory now is the boring one. It's that this is a glitch caused by the way Kepler actually detects its data. It's not unique. This has happened before, uh, but this is the most spectacular example of it. So uh, the idea is really now that this um, this issue is caused by an instrumental fault rather than anything untoward going on in the depths of the universe, which, as you said, is a great pity. Yeah, it is, yeah. But when you take it all into consideration, <clears throat> the most likely answer is probably the most simple answer, and that is the equipment's not working properly. Yes, that's right, yeah. What a pity, Fred. <laughs> that's terribly disappointing. Oh, well, um, it just means the search continues for uh, alien megastructures and whatever else might be out there dimming stars. Exactly. For now, so we're, we're still looking, that's right. Now it's a Kepler cock-up, basically. <laughs> All right. You're listening to Space Nuts uh, with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, we move a little closer to home, but still not very close, from a star in the outer reaches to a moon in the outer reaches of our solar system. Uh, that is Pluto's moon, Charon. Uh, and, of course, last year we got pretty close to these places uh, with um, the New Horizons probe and it took some amazing, amazing pictures, which they're still working their way through. I mean, the data that came back from that mission is astronomical. You could fill a university with, with paper from all the material they got. Uh, but one of the things that's popped up is this strange red cap on Charon, the, uh, the red colouring um, uh, around its north pole. This is, this is quite a, uh, an amazing find. Uh, that's right. So, yeah, exactly as you said, the uh, this stunning flyby of Pluto and its system of moons, five moons altogether, um, took place last year. And you're quite right that the data are still revealing their secrets. Um, but what's happening now is people are taking the information that was gleaned from that and uh, and really analysing to try and find out just what's going on with the physics of the situation. And one of the puzzles was exactly as you said, Karen, uh, the, the biggest moon of Pluto, in fact, uh, actually half the diameter of Pluto, has, um, has a north polar region which is dark in colour. Mostly when we look at um, planets, well, like the Earth and Mars, you expect the polar regions to be white because of ice. Yeah. But um, when you get to 
the outer parts of the solar system where the dwarf planet Pluto resides. Um, the whole thing is covered in ice. Um, so these worlds are ice worlds. They've got a surface uh, crust of water ice. It's just the same sort of stuff that we have at our North and South Pole. But the point is that the temperature is much, much lower. Uh, the wintertime temperature at Pluto is something like minus 250 degrees Celsius. It's extraordinarily cold. And so that means that this ice behaves as rock. And in fact, it's very ancient. So it's been subject to bombardment by meteors and uh, asteroids in the early history of the solar system and things of that sort. So um, that sort of rules out the expectation that you might have bright white polar caps around a world like Pluto and its moon, Charon. Um, but what was a surprise was to find that Charon's got this dark reddish coloured North Pole. Mm. It, the expectation is that the South Pole will be the same. But um, actually, New Horizons didn't see uh, uh, Charon's uh, South Pole when it, when it flew by. So we've only got the evidence coming from the North Pole. So what is it and why is it red? Um, what's happened now is a fairly complex uh, calculation of, uh, of the chemistry going on around the vicinity of Charon has been made by a group at the Lowell Observatory, which is uh, actually based at Flagstaff in Arizona. It's a place I've visited. Of course, it's where um, the dwarf planet Pluto was discovered back in 1930, so it's very appropriate. So they are working on, uh, on Charon. And what they've uh, de deduced is that this reddish stuff is, um, is basically a compound called uh, a tholin, T-H-O-R-L-I-N. These are, the, yeah, tholins are long chain hydrocarbons. So they're, they're sort of molecules, a bit like the kind of molecules we find in natural gas and things of that sort, um, but, but very complex. And as they said, long chain, it means they, they, they stick together. So they're, uh, they're described by the principal scientists as big tangly masses of molecules uh, which have the reddish color. In fact, actually, I, I was interested to read that the, the word tholin um, comes from an ancient Greek word meaning sepia ink. Um, you know, the sepia color that we, we used to in yes, uh, yes. ancient photos, which is kind of reddish brown. So it's, it's a very appropriate name. Mm. Um, uh, so that's now uh, basically identified what this red stuff is. So what these guys at Lowell Observatory have now been doing is trying to work out how it got there, because that's, um, you know, a, a, probably a fairly complex chemical process. I'm not going to go into the details, but it, it seems to start with, with gas, uh, with methane gas from Pluto's atmosphere leaking on towards Charon. And basically during the, during the winter period, freezing out onto the surface of Charon and then um, uh, go undergoing some really interesting chemistry when it's bombarded by ultraviolet light from the sun. So uh, the, apparently during the winter, when you've got these minus 250 degree Celsius conditions, uh, this bombardment by, uh, by the solar ultraviolet light is enough to sort of strip away some of the chemical uh, elements uh, from these, uh, these uh, hydrocarbons and leave just behind the tholins, which are what are, what are observed. It is a complex process, and they do admit that some of their process, uh, some of their calculations involve back of the, ele 
back of the envelope calculations, but they are com- um, they're confident that they're actually in the right in the right place. They've got it. It brings in things called methyl radicals and things of that sort, which uh, uh, catalyze the chemistry to produce the tholins. So, uh, very interesting story. That's just what scientists love: um, a, a puzzle. Uh, namely this reddish pole, polar cap on Karen, and then a way to solve the puzzle, which is the chemistry that seems to work from their calculations. Yeah, but I, I'm trying to get through in my head how how these gases get from Pluto to Charon. I mean, it's got a, that's a fairly big distance, isn't it? It is. That's right. So, um, but it, it's um, actually not that surprising because until New Horizons flew by. Um, everybody expected that Pluto Pluto would have an atmosphere. We know that from observations that were made from the Earth. But that Pluto's atmosphere would be very diffuse indeed. In other words, it was sort of barely hanging onto the planet. And it was suspected, in fact, that Pluto's atmosphere would actually extend out to the, to the distance of Charon. So that you've got a, a single atmospheric envelope with both these objects within it. That didn't seem to be the case when the observations were made. Uh, one, another of the surprises, actually, was that Pluto's atmosphere is fairly compressed. It's fairly tightly bound to the, to the dwarf planet. But it still remains that some of the atmospheric contents can actually find its way, uh, can, can find their way to, to Charon itself and do this transfer across space. Even though we don't have the situation where you've got a common envelope for both, a common atmospheric envelope for both these worlds, you've got a situation where there is a transfer of gas between them. So could you compare that to situations like uh, Earth and Mars swapping rocks? Um, very loosely, that's right. It's, it's uh, you know, it's it, it's certainly true that uh, the Earth and Mars have swapped rocks. That's been due to uh, the impact of other rocks uh, digging out stuff. Uh, but uh, so we we don't sort of share a, a common pathway for for asteroidal debris between the Earth and Mars. Um, it, it's uh, of course Charon and and uh, Pluto are much much closer together than the Earth and Mars are. So it's not that unexpected. Mm, okay. Well, uh, still a lot to learn from Pluto, Charon, and exactly. uh, everything in the uh, outer reaches of our solar system. It's a fascinating place. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. And finally today, Fred, we're moving uh, right into the middle of our solar system. We've sort of gone from the outer reaches of the universe to a star to the outer reaches of our solar system. Now we're going right to the inside of it to Mercury. And that's another planet that we've been studying pretty heavily in recent times. Uh, and for a long time, for that matter. Um, but now they've discovered that it's got something in common with Earth, which is hard to believe when you consider that one side of it you could basically, um, you know, burn everything that exists, and on the other side you you could make ice cream with the snap of your fingers. It's, it's a strange and unusual place. And just, I might divert for a moment. I'm reading a book at the moment by um, an author who obviously is quite, um, focused on the astronomical world with some of the, the theories and, and concepts that he's come up with, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. And he, uh, in this book, has um, actually established a city on Mercury. And, of course, you couldn't put a city on the ground and leave it there because once the sun rose, it would burn. But what they did was, um, in his book, they, they put the city on rails and the rails expanded by the heating of the sun and pushed the city along. So it was always just slightly in shadow and therefore didn't burn. Very clever thinking. 
But that's oh beside, gosh, that's beside the point. Um, <laughs> what have we discovered about Mercury that it's got that Earth has? Uh, well, um, it's got uh, an active geology. That, that's the uh, the short answer. There's a bit more to it than that, of course. Uh, but once again, it's um, it's a bit different from the Earth's in that we have an active planet because um, the surface of the Earth uh, undergoes what we call plate tectonics, the, the movement of these continental plates, which we now know is driven by the, um, by the basically by the um, uh, convection currents in the Earth's mantle. That's what actually moves the Earth's plates along. It's what causes continents to collide and gives us all the, the usual stuff that we're familiar with in terms of volcanoes and earthquakes and um, everything that comes about when you have a planet that is geologically active. Yeah. Mercury is active for a slightly different reason though and it is to do with its position uh, close to the sun the closest of all the planets so um, between 2011 and 2015 when it crashed onto the surface uh, mercury was being explored by a, a nasa spacecraft uh, it was in orbit around mercury during that period it was called messenger um, named really for for mercury's um, uh, mythological name of the winged messenger but it actually <laughs> is an acronym i think it's the worst acronym in the world it's it, it stands for mercury surface space environment geochemistry and ranging mission and you've got to pick different letters from those words to make the messenger acronym That's i think this should be just just for, forgotten about it and called it messenger a personal friend of mine who's a poet makes up words so that he can get his rhymes I oh, I think astronomers have read his books. <laughs> they might have done, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, the um, the Messenger mission, uh, like New Horizons that we were just talking about, was incredibly successful. It um, basically studied uh, a lot about the, uh, you know, the the, the geology, um, I mean, the ancient geology of uh, of Mercury. It looked uh, in detail at the surface, made very highly detailed maps of the surface of Mercury. But towards the end of the mission, what the mission scientists did was to reduce the height of messenger above mercury's surface so they could get ever more detail in the images that they were seeing and eventually the spacecraft was made to crash actually onto the surface uh, to do some you know to, to basically look at the plume of material that came from that crash and analyze what that was made of it's um, a thing, hasn't it crashing it, spacecraft into things just to see what happens yeah, there's a there's a little bit more. 67P, the most recent example. Yes, that's right. 67P did the same thing. Exactly so. So um, the the detail that was revealed um, by the sort of the spiral down towards the surface of Mercury is what has told scientists that Mercury is geologically active today. Um, let me step back a minute and explain what uh, the what we knew beforehand about Mercury, and that is that it's got these really quite major geological features on it, uh, which are, you might call escarpments and sort of things like rift valleys on the Earth that are kind of almost global in scale. They, they go over very large uh, areas of the planet's surface, and that reveals that Mercury uh, shares something in common with our Moon, in fact, and that is that it has shrunk. Uh, during its history. It's got slightly smaller. And that's really just a product of a cooling body. Um, when something cools, uh, it's 
thermal expansion reverses and it starts to shrink. And that's what's happened with Mercury. Now, Mercury has a crust of rock on its surface. And so when, the, the, um, when Mercury shrinks, it, it tends to buckle the rock and causes these escarpments and, and rift valleys. So that much was known uh, that uh, at some time in its past, Mercury was a shrinking world. But the new data revealed from these very low flybys uh, of of uh, messenger the messenger spacecraft shows that it's still shrinking uh, how do we know that it's because um the detail has revealed uh, scarps that are very very much finer in their structure than the big ones that we've seen before and these scarps if they'd been caused back in you know ancient times maybe 3 billion years ago they would have er they would have eroded away by now um, and they they are fresh features they they've got sharp edges they're things that have only relatively recently happened and not had time for the radiation of the sun and the bombardment by micrometeorites and things of that sort to smooth up the surfaces and erode them away so that's a pretty exciting uh, uh, find it, it means, um, in fact, uh, as, as one of the uh, senior scientists has said, uh, a man called uh, Dr. Tom Waters of the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum uh, in Washington, D.C., he says the young age of the small scarps means that Mercury joins Earth as a tectonically active planet with new, for new faults likely forming today as Mercury's interior continues to cool and the planet contracts. Uh, quite an, an, an interesting and exciting discovery that, you know, maybe if you stood on Mercury, and heaven forbid, because your temperature would be high on one side and low on the other, but maybe if you stood there, you would feel periodic earthquakes because of the shrinking of, uh, of the planet underneath your feet. Um, that's maybe something that your science fiction author should build into his story. Yeah, maybe you'll have to rewrite the whole book. All right, Fred. Um, fascinating as always and great to have you back. Thank you so much and we will catch you again next time. It sounds good, Andrew. Thank you very much for your time too. That's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and you've been listening to Space Nuts. Thank you for following us on Facebook and uh, make sure you tell your friends about us and review us on iTunes. Um, we'd love to uh, get your feedback in any way or form. And I hope you'll join us next time on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes Audio Boom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. 
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.